You're listening to Florida Capital Conversations, a podcast series brought to you by Holland and Knight's Tallahassee office. Each episode of this series will take a look at the many different aspects of state and local government through the lens of our experienced legal professionals. Our hosts, Nate Adams and Mia McCown, have a wide range of Florida governmental experience and offer a seat at the table to everyone who listens to these candid conversations. Welcome to our Florida Capital Conversations podcast series. Today, our subject is the executive branch of state government, and our guest is none other than former Governor Bob Martinez. My name is Nathan Adams. My co-host is Mia McCowan. We're so pleased that you have joined us today to consider another important issue associated with state government affecting the business community and our daily lives as Floridians. And there's none better than Governor Martinez to kick off our discussion about the executive branch of state government. Mia, why don't you start us off? Good afternoon, Nate. It's nice to be here again. And Governor Martinez, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get into talking about the executive branch, you've had a long career in public service. Could you tell us a little bit about your the, the public offices that you've held and that kind of led up to you becoming governor of our state? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a pretty long trip, quite honestly. Uh, uh, before I became uh, a member of the Southwest Water Management District, for about nine years, I was a chief lobbyist for the uh, Hillsborough Classroom Teachers Association, also the lead lobbyist often for the Florida Education Association. So my first uh, stay in Tallahassee was in 1965 uh, when the legislature met every other year. And uh, the governor was only allowed to have one term of office while the cabinet members had unlimited terms that they could serve. So that's how I cut my teeth uh, in terms of um, dealing with Tallahassee as a lobbyist for education. But I was also was active, quite frankly, like on the Greater Tampa Chamber of Commerce. Uh, the fact that I was on a teacher organization, I was still on the board of directors of the, of the local Chamber of Commerce. So I sort of was spreading my wings in different directions, not just with public employees, but there I was involved with a big chamber that uh, serves the people of, the, of Tampa. You know, I get asked a lot, how did you get into politics? And uh, it started with who would ask you holding public office. Uh, I had stopped uh, representing the teachers, and my background is labor and industrial relations. I have a degree in that, and I first represented employers, and then I got and moved over to the teachers. So I was on both sides of the fence as a hired gun, so to speak, uh, by virtue of being retained uh, by one side or the other. But uh, by that time, I was getting tired of it, and my uncle owned a major restaurant in Tampa, and uh, he decided that uh, he wanted to retire. And my wife and I, uh, Mary Jane, decided that maybe it was a change for us as well. So we bought it, and uh, which is probably what led me towards the political world, quite frankly. I had a bought, I bought the restaurant in May and in June, in the middle of lunch, the late Governor Ruben Askew, who was a friend and I had been involved with his campaigns, calls me while I'm trying to seek people for lunch and asked if I would serve in the Southwest Water Management District Board. So I said, Ruben, I just bought a restaurant that I don't know a thing about. I'm trying to learn how to buy, how to manage the staff, dealing with all the customers, trying to hold my uncle's customers and get new, younger customers 
to come to the restaurant, and I don't think I can do it. Well, he wouldn't get off the phone. He says, I don't, I don't want to appoint anybody that wants it. There was a, lot, there was a major water war happening in Hillsborough, Pinellas, and Pasco. And uh, it was very bitter between those cities and the counties at that time. And after about 30 minutes on the phone, he finally said, they only meet once a month. So I says, all right, right, I'll I'll do it, Ruben. I'll go ahead and and, um, and take the assignment. Well, what he didn't mention is that the the Southwest Water Management District Board had basin boards. And Hillsborough had three basin boards. As a result of having three basin boards, I had three other meetings and chairing those three basin boards. And Swiftmod met for two days, not one day. So it turned out to be much more than the governor had told me it would be. But that's how I got started. And I'm glad I took that assignment. For a while there, I thought I had made a mistake with running the restaurant and having people come to the restaurant and talk to me about water and what they wanted, what it was, you know, the whole thing. So then I got lobbied. I've been nine years I've been lobbying. Now for the first time I'm being lobbied. And that was quite a quite a change for me, you know, from going from one side to the other. I actually knew Governor Askew too. And he was, the point that he said to you, there are a lot of people that want this job, but I don't want to appoint them because they want it. And he was such a stickler for ethic, you know, ethics and fair treatment and, op- you know, the open government. He was such a good guy, such a good man. And I found that just that comment that he made to you and who he was looking to serve. Very, um, number one, it speaks to your character and it says a lot about him as well. Very interesting historically. But that's how it started. And um, uh, getting back to the ethics, there were two members of the board at that time that had conflicts of interest. There were engineers. And they were doing work for cities and counties. And uh, I guess the governor actually had had enough of it and asked both of them to resign. And uh, so as a result of that, a vacancy occurred. And uh, therefore, he appointed me to that vacancy that took place as a result of a conflict of interest by a former board member. How did you end up being mayor? Weren't you, I mean, mayor of Tampa, was that the, was that kind of the next big step that you took after the water management district? I had thought about it, uh, to be honest with you. My personal attorney was Clint Brown, and my business attorney was a Clint Brown. And he and his wife would come uh, to the restaurant almost every Friday night. And uh, my uncle had been unionized, so we, we had certain labor rules we had to follow as well. So my wife would come on Fridays to relieve the cashier, so she uh, would have a five-day week. And then she'd come on Saturdays to do the bookkeeping for Saturday sales, uh, from Friday sales. So every Friday night, my wife and I would eat with Clint Brown and his wife. And uh, Bill Poe was the mayor of Tampa at that time. But Bill, unfortunately, had a heart attack, and he did recover, but he also announced that he would not seek re-election. So Clint Brown starts with, you need to run for mayor. And this was every Friday night. And I said, look, Clint, I'm, I got my, you know, I got a, a good-sized debt here for the rest of the property I bought. Uh, Marion and I went ahead and used our, our residence as equity, so I can't afford to fail this thing because otherwise we're going to be out in the woods uh, with no place to go. And But after about four or five months of this, I finally, uh, uh, on a September, October of 78, I said, all right, I'm going to do a test run to see if, in fact, uh, what kind of publicity the local papers are going to give with the fact that I'm thinking about running for 
So I called the tri- uh, Tampa Tribune reporter order to, uh, order to come over to the restaurant. Uh, the restaurant's name was Cafe Sevilla, uh, Spanish restaurant. And um, Howard Gorman uh, was a Tribune reporter covering Swift Mud, among other things. So I called Howard and said, hey, Howard, uh, you want to come over to, to the restaurant late, at, late lunch, maybe 1.30 in the afternoon, and you can come over, I'll buy you lunch. So he came over, he thought it was going to be um, a Swift Mud story something to do with water management board. So we're talking and he had a sandal pad there, but not open, just listening to some of the stuff about water management and all that. And so gradually began said, you know, I'm, I know Bill Poe, a good friend of mine, a good customer here, he's not going to run for mayor. So all of a sudden he stops eating, he takes out the metal pad out, to start taking notes. And he said, are you going to run? He said, no, I didn't say I'm going to run. I'm just saying that I'm kind of looking at it. Uh, it's vacant. Uh, I know there's already a number of people wanting to be mayor of Tampa, but uh, that would not affect my decision one way or the other, no matter who it is. If I decide I want to run, it doesn't really matter. Well, the next day, the Tampa Tribune runs it, front page headlines, followed by the Tampa Times, which the Tribune owned. So there's this massive stories, and of course, the supporters of the announced candidates start coming to the rest and trying to talk me out of out of running uh, for mayor. And so this went on for a number of months. I did, after that, I, I cooled it down, didn't do anything, didn't go, didn't go seek support from anybody, didn't go raise the money. So it was months later, early 79, because the race was going to be in September 79. And uh, so sometime in the first quarter of 79, I formally made the announcement that I would seek the office of mayor. But it just came with my wife, Clint Brown, his wife's name is Cindy, just the four of us, no consultants, not talking to anybody else. And I finally said, all right, I'll do it. So that's sort of a, how that happened. And, uh, and of course, they turned out to be a successful race. Uh, I ran against four others, and I won in the first primary. And as you know, it, other than Jacksonville, all municipal elections are nonpartisan, although they have become very partisan in recent years, where the parties do get involved in nonpartisan races. But back in those days, uh, the parties were not involved in, like they are today. And uh, so that's sort of how it happened. That uh, a force of having been on a Friday night, week after week, finally getting in and saying, all right, I'll do it. And of course, my wife was there, so she obviously agreed for me to do it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. So then the rest of it is history, you know, as far as being mayor. And, and as you probably know, the, the mayor of Tampa is a strong mayor system. There's no city man. So you're the, you're the chief executive officer of the city. So it's a totally different thing. So once I did that, I could no longer have anything to do with the restaurant and money. So uh, so that's, that's the story of the, of the mayorship. I love that. So Governor, you uh, take us through. So you you were mayor for a period of time, and then at some point you made the decision to, to run for governor. So tell us about the next chapter. Yeah, again, Clint Brown was involved again. And asked for re-election in 1983. But as part of running for re-election, I said I will not seek a third term. And in fact, I'm putting on the ballot a term limit for council members and the mayor for two eight-year terms. And uh, so uh, and that got big stories, you know, that I wasn't going to run for a third term just for two terms and that I was going to put term, I was going to a referendum and to put term limits. So one of the first calls that I got in the morning after Clint Brown read the story. Why did you do that? I said, because I'm not running a third term. I don't want to be a career 
mayor. Uh, I think if I can't do what I what the public wanted me to do, what I wanted to do in two terms, then you just become an employee of the city. I don't be an employee of the city. I said, no, I don't mean that. I mean running for governor. So I started laughing. I said, I'm running for governor. Said, That's what I mean. Bob Graham is turned down. You know, so you'll be you'll be on you'll be into your third and seven and a half years before you have to resign. And uh, so it's logical that this is what you need to do. So uh, I said, you know, Clay, that's a big, big, big jump. And I'm going to have to sell. I would have to sell the rest. There's no way in the world I, I could deal with it. I my wife would not want to deal with it either. Still sitting, sitting as a mayor because I won't resign until I qualify. And then having the rest on the side. That's just not what it works. So, you know, one of the first things I'm about to do is decide how to sell it. If I, if I do this, and I, I doubt that I want to do that. So, uh, so while the, the other thing you have to do is you govern conservatively. I have reduced the mills from nine and a half to four and a half mills. Our waste handlers had a wildcat strike like in my fourth month in office because I was bringing in side loaders instead of having workers hang on the back of the truck. There was a side loader would get the bins to put them in the garbage truck, and they didn't want to reduce the number of employees. So while I'm at a meeting, they call it a wildcat strike. But I prevailed, and I think the strike lasted maybe three days before it got broken. I suspended the union for a year and reorganized uh, the departments that needed to be reorganized during that period of time. So that was in that background. So I was still a registered Democrat at that time. But the interesting thing is that uh, Senator Laxalt, that was very close to uh, President Reagan, uh, came by to visit me before the 82 election, and he came by trying to and ask why I didn't change parties to Republican. And I said, well, I'm, I'm holding a uh, nonpartisan office. Uh, my party registration um, has never come up, and I had never been active in the Democratic Party, never been to a meeting for the Democratic Party. I, I supported Democrats because that's all there was in Tulsa County, but I wasn't active in, in the party. And I said, so I've never given, given any thought on party affiliation since I'm holding a nonpartisan office. And I uh, says, well, you know, the president would like to see if you would change parties and you ought to give it some thought. And uh, anyway, and he left. So he didn't uh, seek re-election. So then uh, I went to Orrin Hatch. Orrin Hatch shows up, grading two, to see if, in fact, I would consider changing parties and Citing some of the conservative things I had done that I fit better in the Republican Party than I fit in the Democratic Party and things of that sort. And uh, so I ran in my re-election in 83. The election date had been changed from a September date to a March date. At the same time, I got elected mayor the first time. So that was a March election. So I got re-elected, released. I had a token opponent. And so it wasn't much of a campaign. So shortly thereafter, President Reagan invites me to the White House. And I've been a White House board Jimmy, with Jimmy Carter. So uh, I accepted the invitation. It was just a, a daytime trip. But back in those days, there was a flight out of Tampa to Washington almost every hour. I was doing regulated periods and had all kinds of flights all the time. So I asked if I could take someone with me. And he said, yeah, you can take one person. So Al Austin was uh, very prominent in Colesboro County, the Republican Party. So I invited him to go with me. Plus, he was my neighbor and my customer on top of that. So we, we were friends. So we went there and uh, 
to the White House, uh, I think it was in March or April of 83. I think it was April of 83. So I entered the uh, Oval Office. The, the president got up, you know, the greatest. And uh, the people that I grew up with, including my wife, uh, still call me Bobby. So, you know, once a Bobby, always a Bobby. You can't get rid of it. And uh, so as I walked up, he says, um, he, greeted me, hi. he says, hi, Bobby, I'm Ronnie. And uh, so I said, Mr. President, you know, I'm delighted I did not say once. Mr. President, I'm delighted to be here, delighted to meet you in person. And I've been watching your term in office and you've done a magnificent job, things of like that nature. So chat a little bit. And he says, you know, we are much alike. So uh, telling myself, where is this going? So uh, I said, uh, I was once the head of a union and, you know, so were you. I once had to deal with a strike, so did you. Once a uh, Democrat, you know, so were you. So we sort of have a similar path, and maybe you ought to take one more step like I did, become a Republican. And it's also a major decision, a major decision that I don't ever make without my wife, which is the truth, even to this day. And uh, so it's something that would have to be talked over for a while to see if, in fact, that's something that I want to do. I told Al Austin, I'm sure the media is going to be out there and they're going to be asking why I was here and who paid my way here. And I bought my own ticket. I did not have the city buy my ticket because I knew this had nothing to do with, with the city of Tampa. I just had that feeling that it was not about Tampa. It was about me. So sure enough, when I came out, we came out to the White House lawn. There's a gaggle of reporters. Why are you here? What did you talk about? You changing parties. So I'm sure they had leaked you know, that why I might be there. And of course, I dodged it all. You know, I would answer straightforward what they wanted. They wanted me to say that I was going to change parties and I wouldn't do it. They wanted me to tell them what I, we talked about and I wouldn't do it. And um, so we finally, they finally brought it to an end. The White House staff brought it to an end. So we leave and I told Ellis, they'll be at the airport as well. And of course, in those days, you go right to the door of the airplane. Uh, without any problems. So sure enough, there was a smaller group, but there's still another group of reporters. And we'll go through that again before getting to the plane. And we got back to Tampa. There they are, the Tampa meeting. There was a lot back in those days. There was four or five local papers and all the TV stations. So I had to go through it again. And uh, so that's sort of how the whole process of switching party registration from Democrat to Republican took place. What I love about that story, Governor Martinez, is they could ask you all they wanted, but the reason that you've had a marriage that's lasted longer than your political career is that you knew you needed to talk to Mrs. Martinez first. Um, you know, she was a big part of all those decisions. Y'all were a team in doing all of this. Yeah, that, that started in homeroom at Thomas Jefferson High School. I sat behind her alphabetically. Oh. <laughs> So time passes, and about June or July, I finally called uh, the White House back, and I said, I don't need to talk to the president, but I did tell the president I will let him know of my decision about changing party affiliation. And uh, you can tell the president that my wife and I will be headed to the supervisor elections office this morning to change party registration, and uh, which we did. And, of course, uh, someone informed the media we didn't. But I knew somebody would. And sure enough, we got there. There's all the media again about my changing party uh, affiliation and why was I changing? Am I going to do something politically? Is that why I'm changing parties and things of that sort? 
And uh, so that, that was phase one in terms of getting in the position to run for governor of the state of Florida. What a, what a great story. So tell us more about your decision then to actually go ahead and run run for office and who you ran against. And and then I'm, I'm going to ask you about uh, the manner in which you ended up structuring that office once you got there. After, after the voter registration changed, then I started getting all kinds of invitations from the local Republican Party committees to go speak. I generally would not do it unless it was within 100 miles of town, because I didn't want to be seen that early going all over the state, being away from the office, because it's a small mayor system, so you're running the office. So I had a good chief of staff and good staff. You didn't want to be seen going all the time somewhere. So it was more than Orlando. Uh, on the west or further than uh, Fort Myers in the south, I wasn't going to accept it, not, not at this stage of the game. In March of uh, 85, formally announced that I would run for governor of the state of Florida and opened my uh, campaign account on March 1st. I had not opened a campaign account, I had not raised any money. And um, but I had a list of names that I was going to call immediately because I wanted to show a lot of money in a short period of time because you had to disclose what you raised in early April. So it was a gamble. The gamble was if you didn't do it, uh, the story would be that you didn't raise a lot of money. If you were able to do what we, what we were plotting to do, which to raise on the money, a lot of money in 30 days, then it would be a big story. I forgot the exact amount, but in 30 days, we raised about uh, half a million dollars, which was much more than any other Republican candidates uh, had raised at that stage. And uh, so I got a lot of good coverage by the fact that I was able to raise money uh, that quickly for the governor's race. So uh, then, you know, the march started now. Max Zipanovich ended up being the campaign manager. I never hired staff for any of my campaigns, uh, mayor or governor. It was all voluntary staff. The only thing I ever hired were posters and media people, but no consultants. We were on our own all the time. Other than Mrs. Martinez, she was your number one consultant, I bet. <laughs> For almost eight years as mayor. I've always been sort of a risk taker, like buying a restaurant, put in my house more, and, you know, it's collateral. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, this was bigger stakes, obviously, a lot of publicity involved. And, she, at that time, was a head media specialist at King High School. That was her career. So that uh, she was still doing that. So wasn't traveling very much unless it was a night event. It wasn't too far from where we lived. And that's about the only time that she was traveling in the early stages of the campaign. The thing that, that, is, that when I say risk-taking, I'll, get, I'll give you a good example. Go back to my mayor days. It was two weeks before the mayor's election, September, I think it was September 4th of 79. And we had a down and dirty poll done by some local poster that showed that it had a huge lead over all my opponents to win in the first primary. I had maybe forty, fifty thousand dollars left in the bank account. So the question was, do we spend it all to seal victory or do we hold back for a runoff? And I bet we must have talked about that for about three or four hours and volunteer leadership. I was included Mac and Clint Brown and a few other people. So finally I got tired of listening to them and I said, I'm going to spend every dollar. I know this poll can't be all that accurate to be have that kind of a lead, but with the kind of lead they're talking about, we got to be ahead, you know, or this would really be a crappy poll. So I did spend every single dollar in the, in the account buying TV time, and my opponents couldn't do that. They didn't have that kind of money, and I won the first primary. So that was kind of risk taking to be 
you know, to raise some money in three weeks for a runoff and, and not have anything in the bank. So Ranford got sort of the same thing. It's risk-taking. You have to take, you know, a lot of risk. Uh, like you do in most things in life, like we all do even here working for Holland Nights, you, you know, we take risk all the time. But it's one that uh, uh, victory is joyful and uh, not winning is painful. And, and it's a public event, a you know, public spectacle, if you want to say that, is to put it in that fashion. The staff that I had beyond uh, Mac and his wife who were there all the time is that I used interns from the University of South Florida and uh, interns from the University of Tampa. And they were the, the, the worker bees. Uh, and they did great. Uh, one was Jim McGill. He was an intern, I think he's from USF. Another real important volunteer for me was uh, Brian Ballard, who was a third year law student. And he became my travel aide and, of course, was with me uh, for months every day of, of the week. And uh, he and Matt Stepanovich and Gordon Gillette and uh, Jim McGill all went to work for me after I got elected. Uh, there were great volunteers. Can't thank them enough. I raised the first million dollars one person at a time, no fundraising. Just going to somebody's office that I had arranged an appointment with, making my pitch. You could write a check for 3000 corporately or individually. So my first million for the primary was all one-on-one. No fundraiser held. So it wasn't until while, well after I qualified in um, 86 that we started having fundraisers, not just the one-on-ones. Uh, so it was hard work. You know, sometimes we have five and six of these one-on-ones scattered in one location of the state. And they had, you know, they made your sale. They didn't know who you were. I didn't know who they were. I knew of them, but I had never, some of them I never had met. Uh, so it was one-on-one salesmanship in those early stages. Now, what did help me a great, great deal is that I had gotten active with the Florida League of Cities. In the time I ran for governor, I was a president of the Florida League of Cities. So I was being invited to speak all over the state. And I usually would accept these speeches in the major metropolitan areas of the state. And it was either a big rotary or the Chamber of Commerce or groups like that. And uh, every time I went and spoke, you ended up walking away with a whole bunch of business cards, which you took back to the campaign office and began organizing how do we reach out to them in the campaign mode instead of a mayor mode. So it was pretty well organized. Remember, there were no computers back in those days to speak of, no cell phones to speak of. This was paper-driven, telephone-driven, just hard work to get it done because you don't have the niceties that you have today. If I remember correctly, you were running against, and I'm dating myself big time, wasn't it Steve Padgett? Was he, am I pronouncing that right? Was he on the, Was he the Democrat nominee? I can't remember. Primary, you're right. It was Steve Padgett out of Jacksonville. I'm pretty sure he had been in the House of Reps. But what I thought was interesting that you talked about was your connection with the League of Cities. It's almost like your tentacles and relationships across the state, even though he had been, quote, in Tallahassee, you almost had better coverage across the state because of those relationships with the League of Cities. It's very interesting how all that works. Beginning, I was a regional leader. I'll tell you why. The, the mayor of Tampa gets an incredible amount of publicity. And we have four broadcast stations. And we have three, well, we have four major dailies. So anywhere within 100 miles or let's say 80 miles of Tampa, I was well known because I was on TV constantly. And the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl was there in 84, if I remember correctly. 
Correct. So you had national attention. Yeah, so I had that going for me while Tom Gallagher and Lou Fry did not have that going for them because they didn't hold a kind of office that the media was always after you to talk about. The Big 13. Remember Big 13, Channel Big 13. Yeah, we had 13, 10, and 8. And uh, so I had that advantage at the very beginning that I was – so anytime they polled, I would always poll higher than they did because they just didn't get the media coverage that I was able to get as the mayor of the city of Tampa. And so that was a great advantage to me and a disadvantage to them. We, we can kind of cut the suspense. We know you got elected. You won. You beat you beat Steve Padgett. And then um, you were preceded by one of my favorite people in the whole entire world. Um, he has now passed away, Wayne Mixon, who I like to say was the best governor we had for three days because um, Senator Graham, um, who had been governor, obviously won the U.S. Senate and went to D.C., so you didn't have a Tallahassee background, so to speak. So as Nate mentioned, what, what did you do to set up? How did, how did you set up the executive office? There was no pool of Republican staffers. Uh, oh, that's right. You were like the first Republican governor in how long? Uh, well, I think uh, Claude Kirk was there to what, 1970, I think. Uh-huh. 17. Um, and I'm not sure he staffed up a lot with Republican philosophy type staffers. After uh, election, I took three or four days, went down to Boca Grande and, and uh, with key people on the campaign and a few people who were in state government that uh, I had known for a while and I thought they may be more of my persuasion and uh, laid out the plan how we're going to do the next 60 days before being sworn in as, uh, as governor and who would be, who we, we would seek out uh, for the business community to assist us in the transition process, setting up the inaugural committee and who would head up the inaugural committee and who should be members of the inaugural committee. So when all that was done, that we decided some names to pursue beyond those that we already had, then we decided to use the governor's in conference room on the ground floor as my work where I would interview people and work from. So I would get there early in the morning on a Monday and then leave Friday afternoon back for Tampa the process of moving, helping my wife as well, and then moving to Tallahassee. So uh, I did all the interviews basically there at the governor's end. And at that time, uh, you may recall that the court ruled that, uh, that the law passed the legislature that members of the judicial branch had to retire at age 72 and had created two vacancies in the Supreme Court. Their terms, the existing, the two that had to vacate their, their office their terms expire like a day after the governor was sworn in. And uh, so during that process, I was interviewing a short list that had been provided to the governor's office for the two positions. And uh, then, of course, you had to find secretaries for the various agencies. And you want to find as many people that you could that would philosophically attune more to you than to, you know, to the Democrat uh, Party or the Democrat uh, members of the legislature. And you have to remember at that time, about two-thirds of the House uh, were Democrat. In fact, I think it was just over two-thirds. And the Senate uh, wasn't quite that much, but that happened to be uh, a misnomer in the sense that four, I believe it was four Democrats bolted uh, the Democrat Party during my election. Upon uh, the legislature convening, uh, I'm skipping a little bit here. Uh, legislature convening for the first time, uh, Dempsey's group and the Republicans 
uh, ousted the incoming president and selected uh, Crawford, I believe. Bob Crawford, yeah, he was a Democrat, but he was put in place by the Republicans. And I think Fred Dudley was very involved in that process. Right. He was in the Senate too, and he was very involved in that process. Uh, that, that's further down. So I just bought right. that up. So at any rate, you know, you have, you have staffing was the main thing. And then you have some key vacancies on boards that had to be addressed. And then you had the whole inaugural thing that you had to get approval to. Do you like this? Do you like that? Do you want this? Do you want that? Although my wife did a lot of that more than I did. I think she would call on me if she thought she was making headway with whomever she was dealing with. And uh, so it was a real busy time. And of course, my wife was good, had, had resigned uh, as a head media specialist at King High School. So uh, that's sort of what, what happened in uh, almost 60 days that you had to get ready for swearing in. Uh, it wasn't my first time, but the thing happened as mayor of Tampa, same thing. Uh, there, I only had three weeks. And uh, again, had a bunch of agency heads you had to deal with. Uh, who did you want there? Who did you want to replace? Uh, so I wasn't a novice in doing that because I'd gone, gone for a smaller government for the same process. So uh, I carried that experience with me and doing the interviewing and making a decision who I wanted to change and why. So, Governor, um, you, you install all these new folks. I, I'm sure you have an executive staff. You have a chief of staff. I'm guessing you probably had some deputy chiefs of staff. How, how did you decide to tell us a little bit about the executive staffing? And then if there was then an office of policy and budget, tell us how that uh, interacted with your day-to-day -day policy work. I started with two chiefs of staff and then dropped down to one with an assistant chief of staff. The OPB was already there. I'm a, I was a customer of using the budget people a lot because, again, as a mayor of Tampa, uh, we had the director of finance. And uh, I've long found out that it's the office of budget or director of finance, whoever you want, is, a, is the enforcer of your program. They know where the dollars are. They know how they're being spent. They know when it's being spent. They know that they're trying to, their staff is trying to divert it to some other activity other than the one that you want. So in essence, OPP is also your cop. Uh, watching that what you wanted to be implemented as policy gets done and not put aside by the career people who are there forever. So you've got to have a cop. And that's the function, in my view, of OPB. First, to develop the budget that you want. Uh, you work with your agency heads and you provide instructions where direction you want to take an agency. You review that those programs are already there. And if they're not working, why are we doing it? Why should we continue to do it? Should we do it at the same level? If you want to go in a different direction, here's why I want to go in a different direction. And what are we going to do, need to go in that direction? What kind of people do we need for that project? How much money are we going to need for that project? How long is it going to take to get it done? And, uh, and these are things that have to be enforced. you got to have somebody watching it. Uh, otherwise, it'll just linger there. Because people get used to the old and the new sometimes is not something they're accustomed to. So uh, it's very important. If you don't have a good office of finance or whatever you want to call it, you're in trouble on the executive branch of government. I know today a lot of people, when they think about the role that lobbyists play in government, they think about lobbying the legislature. Sometimes they don't think about lobbying the executive. Uh, and yet it's the folks in office of policy and budget that oftentimes are pretty instrumental in putting forth policies that actually get to the legislature. 
So, you know, if you were to talk to folks today about, you know, anything that you perceive, you know, the difference between the way it was when you were in office, what's true today, if there's a company that's interested in, in expressing themselves about a policy initiative or has a policy initiative that they would like the governor's office to, uh, to get behind, um, how, how do they go about doing that? I think there's, there's two stages. If you know what you want early on, and it's involving money, then what you want to do is get in as much as early as you can when they're beginning to develop the budget. And then you can get into the governor's office, not necessarily the governor, but into the governor's office to express your views as to why and what it would take. And you're fortunate enough that the governor and the OPB puts it into the budget because you convince them that your idea is pretty good or some existing budget item that exists that deserves more money because they're doing a great job. If you can do it while the planning is taking place, while the budget's being for, uh, uh, done, you are 100% ahead of the game because now it's part of the budget submission you know, by the governor. Then it obviously moves over to the legislative side to see if it stays there or if it gets amended or gets kicked out, whatever. Then the second part is later in the session, if you don't like something, if you can, you may want to seek the help of the executive branch to try to stop something. Or if it's something that you are pursuing is in there, but not in a fashion you like, or in the amount of money that you like, can you get the executive branch of the government to intervene and to either change language or add money? And that happens. It happened while I was there. I rarely got the, the call myself personally. It was generally being the general counsel, chief of staff, the head of OPB, uh, the head of the legislative team, somewhere somewhere in the governor's first floor office. Sometimes you'd leave the governor's office because you, you had accepted a speech in one of the hotels or at the governor's club, whatever. And as you're walking, somebody's grabbing you, you know, how are you doing, blah, blah, blah. But before you get to where you're going, it's by the way, if you can just watch out for whatever it is, that they're interested in, you get that. Or, you know, I would travel, give speeches around the state, and you find them people in an area that, that either had lobbyists or a citizen-type lobbyist, and you get grabbed, and you're told, and always had a staff person to take notes or whatever it is, you know, someone was asking for, someone some, or something they wanted to stop, whatever it was, so that you had record of what it was they told you because otherwise you're not going to remember with all, all the things that people are always telling you. But yeah, it's going to turn the staff is lobby the law. There's no doubt about it. And I think that's probably still true today. So, uh, and I, and I think, you know, that's, that's the process. Uh, that's what I did for a living for nine years myself, you know, when, when I represented the teacher. So uh, how can I be against it? Right. When, when in fact I did it. Uh, but I think it's open. I think it's a different perspective than advice sometimes that you get from government staff or for those of us who've been elected to have a viewpoint. So I don't see it as detrimental as long as you're open about it uh, in terms of you're listening, not necessarily accepting what they're saying, but you're listening. And uh, you do pick up some ideas from time to time or you do come up, they do come up with some, with some, some nugget of information that you all have, we haven't thought about. And uh, so in a free society, the exchange of information is a must. So I don't, I never thought that it was bad to receive information from anyone. 
uh, whether we're paid or unpaid or just citizen or an interest group, whatever it is, you know, that's that's what democracy is all about. So, Governor, I know that now you're part of what we call here at Holiday Night, the Florida government advocacy team. Does that team, is that team you know, doing that kind of work today in the executive office of the governor? Yeah, I think when the, when the need comes, you know, I, I, uh, I personally haven't had it going on an issue for any of our staff members in a while. But I've been in on some hot ones, uh, a lot with the attorney general's office as well. You know, over the past, I think I'm starting my 14th year in Holland Night and before I was with Carl Fields. I think in all those years, I might have gone directly to the governor maybe eight times, all the governors, not just one. The rest of the time, it was just the staff, chief of staff, director of OPB or an agency head or something like that. I try not to, to get directly to the, uh, to the governor if I can do it elsewhere, because I know, I know how busy that office is in no sense. And, and, you know, and I don't need a, any brownie points or anything like that because I did that. What you want is uh, is the issue to get resolved one way or another, and um, you know his staff has his ear. So if you talk to the right staff person, that person is going to talk to the governor. And uh, so I, I think that's the key. Can you access someone that's close to the governor's office who deals with the governor all the time? Can you reach that individual? Can you explain what it is that you're interested in? And uh, that's the best you can do. Uh, sometimes it goes your way. Sometimes it doesn't go your way. That's that also the way it is. Governor, there's just one more aspect of state government that, uh, of course, the, the governor is always central to, and that's the cabinet. If, you know, sometimes there are issues that are not directly within the, the ambit of the governor's in executive agency, but they might be within the cabinet. You've already made reference to the attorney general. Can you tell us just a little bit about that for a second? Well, that has changed dramatically. There was uh, six of them when I was governor. You had the Commissioner of Education that doesn't exist any longer. And you have the Secretary of State, which is now under the governor. And you have the Department of Management Services, which answer the governor cabinet, which now answers to the governor. You had the Department of Natural Resources that used to answer the governor uh, cabinet. They're no longer around either. They're all over at the uh, Environment Protection Agency. And then you still have the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, Highway Patrol, that still answer the governor cabinet. And of course, you have the Parole and Probation Board, which is also an executive board chaired by the governor. So we had a very diffuse kind of an executive government uh, the years that I was governor. And that wasn't changed. The Constitution was uh, amended sometime in the mid-90s or late 90s. That it was changed dramatically, adding the CFO and, and leaving the Commission of Agriculture and the Attorney General. So it was more of a more of a battle then, by virtue of so many agencies answering to the to the governor campus instead of the governor, and so I think it's been cleaned up to the benefit of the governor's office and the executive branch of the governor's office in terms of dealing with everyday business of government. So I think that was a major improvement. But back then, a lot of this stuff, although the governor norm is the one that dealt with the agency heads. They didn't answer the governor. They answered the governor cabinet. So basically, I should have had a boss. You know, there were seven of us. And you could always say, well, you know, I'm going to have to go check with the other cabinet members, whatever it is. So it wasn't much of a management system. I mean, there were good people. I'm not criticizing anybody with an agency head at that time. But quite frankly, when you have seven 
boss and you have no bosses. And uh, so I, I think that's been cleaned up quite a bit, I think, to the benefit of the public. But it, much, it was much more difficult to deal with issues back then uh, because of shared executive duty on many uh, agencies that uh, no longer exist. What also strikes me as such a difference, too, from today versus when you ran is just the money aspect of it, right? I mean, the idea that you personally were going and meeting with people and, you know, individually and raising that money um, without professional fundraisers and all, you know, all, I mean, you're a part of that on the other side now. It's it's just so um, incredible how much money now is involved in campaigns and and things of that nature going forward. I, uh, I never had a political action committee. I just had hard money, uh, never formed one. The only time I raised the soft money was for the party. Uh, and they spent it time. It was, it was not my account. It was for the party. And uh, I never had a pack. Uh, I think in both campaigns, I uh, raised somewhere near $11 million, which is today, by today's numbers is nothing. And I couldn't spend it all. Uh, I would try to buy more TV time, and they were holding it for others. And then as each day got closer to election day, they were free to time. And I would make money and deposit and all these stations to buy up the time as others didn't buy it. And at the end of the campaign, I had leftover money. Not today. I mean, today, uh, 10 minutes is, is not much of anything to run for statewide office. In fact, pretty soon it's not going to be much to run for the mayor of Tampa. Already had $2 million just to run for the city of Tampa mayorship. And uh, so uh, it's, it just changed. No doubt about that. But I, I, as I said, I never I never had a PAC, never used a PAC, and, and I never raised money for a PAC. Even to this day, I've never raised money for a PAC. Well, what a, what a fascinating uh, political journey you've had. And we sure are privileged to have you at Hollow tonight as part of our Florida government advocacy team, Governor Martinez. Um, we really thank you for the chance to sit down and, and listen to you for a little bit and to hear about the executive office of the governor and the opportunities that may exist for uh, companies, for individuals to, uh, to help influence the way policy uh, is developed in the state capitol. So thanks to Governor Martinez for this uh, informative and interesting session. And, um, and thank you, Mia, for joining me. And most of all, thanks to you, all of you who are listening for joining us today. Please plan to join us for our next Florida Capital Conversations podcast. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Florida Capital Conversations. For more information on our Tallahassee office, please visit hklaw.com slash Tallahassee.